You can turn in your Bibles this morning to James chapter 2, or turn on your Bibles. I know we live in the day where we, we carry our Bibles around, and they're all, they're all electric nowadays. So turn on your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning. Uh, to James chapter 2 is where I'll be. Um, a few months back, I gave two sermons out of James chapter 1, and I gave kind of an overview of the book of James, and that seems to help us give, give some foundation uh, to who James was as we approach this scripture. So I'll do the same today. James, uh, who wrote this book, he did name it after himself, Uh, Just kidding. It was just a letter that he wrote to all of the early churches, or at least a lot of them in his area. Uh, He was the brother of Jesus. So he grew up alongside Jesus. He saw all of Jesus' awkward teenage years, saw his acne, all of those things. He saw Jesus at his lowest. If Jesus could have ever been low, James saw him there, all right? And yet he still comes to faith in this man. And that, that is a beautiful truth for us to remind ourselves this morning, is that James, who saw all of Jesus' life, all of it, all of the ins and outs, was there for, for everything, came to faith in his own brother. He trusted his brother with this. And so this book, this letter, has blessed Christians throughout generations, throughout generations, and it's going to bless us here today as we pursue God in the Word. Very much, James, is, um, it's kind of like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, all of Jesus' teachings. Um, he uses a lot of the same illustrations, refers to a lot of the parables. So James really assumes uh, when he's writing this letter, he assumes that we are familiar with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, so he, he shares the gospel, uh, but he doesn't share it in a very direct way. He shares it with people who are already believers. And so in that way, James is very practical. Uh, it's very deep. Very, it has a lot of depth to it, but he assumes that we're familiar with the teachings of Jesus. So if you really want to read all of the things that James is saying, you could read in a condensed ver- version by reading the Sermon on the Mount, which would be Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And James is basically reiterating a lot of those same themes here throughout his book. And we're going to read one of those themes today, and James is going to talk to us about favoritism. So James chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 13 in just a moment, but I'd like to pray before we do that. So if you bow your heads with me, close your eyes, let me pray for us. Father God, we love you and we trust you. And we just simply ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that you would guide us, that you would bring us deeper in our faith. Jesus, we know that this word, your word, changes lives. We just simply ask that you would help to change our hearts this morning. You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is willing to follow you. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. So James, chapter 2. I'm going to read all of verses 1 through 13, so buckle up. It's going to take a second. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool? Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law 
and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. And so James is talking today about the sin of favoritism, which is something that many of us probably don't consider every day. It's probably not uh, a concept that, that we really find in our own hearts, but we see it. We see evidence of it um, in day-to-day life. You know, uh, for me, my experience with favoritism was just whoever was the teacher's pet was obviously showed favoritism towards. So we see evidence of favoritism in our lives. We, we can uh, see the evidence of that in our workplace, in our jobs, all of those things, but it's not really a concept that we think of as, as sinful. We just find it frustrating or annoying, and we think to ourselves, you know, how could favoritism be a sin if God has a favorite football team? Do you know where I'm going with this joke? Because his favorite football team is the Dallas Cowboys. There we go. That was for Pastor Charlie. The Cowboys are hopeless this year. So (laughs) favoritism is much deeper than simply who you like or don't like or who you respect or don't respect. It's much deeper than that. Favoritism or partiality, as some translations will put it, is showing favor, special favor towards people based on an outward appearance based on an outward appearance. That's the key factor here. And so that's not something that we talk about often in the church is favoritism or partiality. It's something that we quietly cultivate within us, simply sits within us and it grows day by day. And our our opinions and our thoughts and our favoritism grows in a place that's hidden, in a place that's private. But James takes extra special attention to this process and says, no, you must fight that within yourself. You must fight against favoritism within yourself. That's because favoritism is a barrier to us having and displaying the kingdom of God in our life. So I've named this sermon Kingdom DNA, and here's why. It's because for the kingdom of God uh, or the kingdom of heaven uh, to, to display itself in our lives, for it to take hold within us, it starts at a heart level. And to participate in the kingdom of God, see, that's, that's a phrase that Jesus used very often uh, in the book of Matthew, one of the four gospels. Jesus used it on every single page of that book. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a phrase that is, that is all over that book. And it's because that is what Jesus came to usher in. That's what Jesus came to teach about. And the kingdom of God was simply his, his mission for us. And that was to see all the nations come to a repenting faith in God, to come to know the creator and the, and the way that this had to happen was that he sent out all of his disciples, right, to go and create disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them the things that Jesus had taught us, and to love them the way that Jesus loved us. That was his mission. And so that's the kingdom of God. But favoritism is a barrier to us having and displaying that in our life, and that's why it must be addressed That's why it cannot just be something that we allow to cultivate in private. It can't just be something that we uh, never consider or or never come to search for in our own hearts. It must be something that we pursue to dig up at the root. And here's why. James talks about it in verses 9 and 10 here of chapter 2. I'm going to read them one more time. He says, If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So James is taking favoritism and he's putting it alongside all of the other awful sins that we think of in the Old Testament. That's what he's trying to do for these people. And so we have this phrase in the Christian faith and we say that the ground is even at the foot of the cross. That's a beautiful truth, isn't it? That that the ground is even, that we're all equally sinners with no 
No person is a worse sinner than the other sinner when it comes to God. We are all equally separated from him by sin. Okay, the inverse of that is also true, is that all sin equally separates us from God. And so let me illustrate this for just a moment because I think we tend to think of sin in our reality, we see sin as having differences in itself, right? And for sure, there are different consequences for different sin. Okay, so there's a difference in consequence for if you were to murder somebody or to have favoritism in your heart. Obviously, you may go to prison for one of those things. So the consequences might be different, but the separation from God is still the same. And so what we need to begin to think of sin about, uh, or what we need to begin to consider about sin, we need to view it in this way, is that it is less about the severity of what you've done or what we've done. It is more about who we sin against. So let me illustrate this for you. Um, we'll, we'll take one action, and I'll walk you through how, how this would change. Okay, so, so this action is me throwing my shoe at somebody. Okay, let's say uh, that my younger brother, whose name is Ben, is standing here on the stage. Uh, he's taller than me now, which is really frustrating. He's in ninth grade. So let's say that he makes a ninth grade boy joke and it's very annoying, and I take off my shoe and I throw it at him. Many of you are probably gonna laugh. None of us are gonna be offended at me doing that to him. He's my younger brother, right? Now let's say there's somebody who's closer to my age, who's, who's like a friend of mine, something like that, and I throw my shoe at them in public. Some of you might be kind of scratching your head thinking, why is Eli running around throwing his shoes at people, okay? Let's take it just a step further. Let's say that we're in public and I throw my shoe at my wife. Many of you are going to have a very visceral reaction to that and be like, you can't do that. You cannot throw your shoe at people like that, right? Now let's take it even to the nth degree here. Let's say that I throw my shoes at the President of the United States. Okay, in 2008, George Bush was the President of the time. He was in Iraq giving a press conference. He had two shoes thrown at him, and he you know, ducked and weaved both of them. But the man who did that was sentenced to prison for three years for the same action that if I do it to my younger brother, nobody, nobody cares, okay? So it is obviously less about the severity of the action, it's more about who we commit that action against, and all sin is sin against our creator, God. So when we take favoritism, the subject of favoritism, it's not just deciding who we like or don't like, or who we respect or don't respect. It is more about becoming sinners against God himself. We play favorites against the humans of the world who are made in God's image, the image that we're created in, and yet we begin to assign them value based on an outward appearance. And that is a sin against God himself. Not just the people that we may play favorites again or have partiality against or for. It's a sin against God himself. So let me reiterate this. Favoritism is not a sin that we can simply look over in our life or in our heart. It is something we must address within us. And that's why James writes extensively about it in his letter. So let me read for us one more time, James chapter 2, verse 1, and then I'll give us three principles and then one question, and we'll end our time together. Sound like a plan? Head nods, yes? Awesome. Okay, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So the first principle this morning that James expounds for us is simply favoritism is unchristian. So as we cling to the faith, we must let go of favoritism. Faith and favoritism are incompatible, especially in the church where we are a family. 
we're a family, and so we cannot pick favorites from amongst ourselves. And I know that this kind of goes without saying, but if we want to be Christians, we want to be Christ-like, we want to follow Jesus, um, we can't have favorites because Jesus did not play favorites, okay? Jesus didn't play favorites. He showed dignity to everyone that he came into contact with. He sought to serve everyone that he came into contact with. He had respect for everyone around him, seeking humility instead of pride in all of those situations. And see, the church must reflect that. We have to be a place where no matter what your background is, you're welcome. No matter who you are, no matter who you might become, no matter who you are being right now, you are still welcome because we do not play favorites in this family. We will not do that, especially if we want to be Christ-like. But there is example after example of Jesus spending time with those he, he wasn't supposed to be because it was scandalous or because he was going to be judged for it or because they were involved with things that were wrong. He was judged for many of these encounters. But if Jesus played favorites, uh, then we wouldn't have the story of Zacchaeus. So in Luke chapter 19, a very short man who was a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus. Uh, he wanted to get his eyes on Jesus. He wanted to see who this man was. He wanted to hear some of his teaching. He's a very short man, couldn't make his way through the crowd. And so he climbs up into a tree. And Jesus walks straight up to that tree, says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today and we're going to have a meal together. That story doesn't happen if Jesus plays favorites. You want to know why? Because the tax collectors who Zacchaeus was, he was participating in the oppression of the Jewish people with the Romans. He was, he was Jesus' enemy, truly. In this culture, in this time, he was Jesus' enemy, and yet Jesus doesn't play favorites with him. Very similar story with a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector, who gave us the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was sitting at his booth collecting taxes, and Jesus comes up to him and says, I want you to follow me. I think of the story of the woman at the well. John chapter 4, this story has touched so many lives and so many people. If Jesus Christ played favorites, he would not have been at the well that day to offer that woman living water. Not water that would satisfy for a day, but water that would satisfy for eternity. And so as we approach favoritism today and partiality and all these things, I don't want, to, I don't want us to just add this to a list of moral uh, good or bad things that we do. I don't want it, us to just add it to our, our Christian list of things that make us uh, good Christians or not. Uh, I, don't, I don't want it to be on the list like, oh no, I played favorites this week. You know, check the box. Oops. I want it to be deeper in that. And here's why. Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is not just a moral compass. It doesn't just point at the good things we're supposed to do and the bad things we're not supposed to do. In fact, if the kingdom of God was a, was a compass, it would be pointing in directions that make no sense to us. Here's why. Because the kingdom of God points us towards the lost, the poor, the broken, the widow, and the orphan. It points us to the places that a, a moral compass would say, stay away from there because bad things happen there. The kingdom of God points us towards nations that would play favorites against us. It points us towards our enemies. And the kingdom of God says, love them anyways. And that's why it can't be seen as a moral compass. This issue of favoritism is important to understand because it can be poisonous in our heart. It can turn us away from and poison us against the people who God might be calling us to love the way that he loves them. An easy example of this would be Jonah. He's a prophet that God calls to go and speak to the people of Nineveh who at the time are, are bitter enemies and bitter rivals of the Jewish people. 
And we tell this story, you know, Jonah, um, he gets this call from God, and then he runs in the opposite direction the opposite direction. We talk a lot about his fear, and he's running away from the calling of God, and all of these things are true, um, but he gets on a, on a boat. There's a big storm. He is thrown over the side by the, by the sailors that he's with, and he's eaten by a great uh, fish. Uh, for three days, he remains in that fish, and then is vomited back up on the shore, and that's when he goes to preach against Nineveh, and he preaches repentance for these people, and they accept it. They accept it. See, Jonah's fear wasn't Nineveh, it wasn't those people. He may have had some fear of those people, but, but truly what the sin in his life is that was poisoning him against doing what God was calling him to do was favoritism, was partiality. He's saying, God, I will not allow you to use me to love your enemies. And yet that is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus says, why would you love and care for the people that, that love and care for you? All, all people do this. He says, I'm calling you deeper. I am calling you to love even your enemies, to pray for them. Jonah didn't understand this. He, he claims, he says in, in Jonah chapter 4, he says, God, I know that you're a God of compassion and mercy, and that's why I didn't want to come, because I knew you'd forgive them. I knew that you would take their side. Jonah was playing favorites, and it poisoned him against the people that God was calling him to. See, simply favoritism is unchristian. It's unchristian. It's not following Christ. The second thing that James points out in this, uh, in this section of Scripture is that favoritism is unreasonable. It's unreasonable. So let me read James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 for us. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So James, in talking about favoritism, decides to use this example of the comparison between, between a rich man in their courts and a poor man in their courts. And, and the point is not to focus on uh, uh, who's good or bad based on rich or poor. He's pointing out, obviously, that God has chosen the poor, and the point is that this is countercultural. Uh, and in this day, any, to have any sort of status in society meant you had to be wealthy. Um, to have any sort of influence or power, you had to have a lot of wealth to you. But James is not saying that it's good to be poor and it's bad to be rich or that only the poor will be saved. He's not saying any of those things. Um, and in fact, to put this into perspective for us, you know, poor is a very relative and ambiguous term, okay? It means something very different today than it did at that point in time. Uh, for those of us in the room today, if, if we have a vehicle that has four wheels and runs on a motor, then we're wealthier than just about 70% of the earth, okay? I know that's not exactly how the math works out, uh, but, but the idea here is that being poor is, is relative. It's very relative to where you're at. So, so James isn't uh, making this dichotomy between good and evil. He's talking about how we treat people. And see, how we treat people shows what we really believe about God. And so what James is leading us to consider is that our value is not based on our valuables. Okay? That your net worth is not connected to your self-worth and that it shouldn't be. And to show partiality towards the rich would be to show what you truly believe, is that you value valuables over people. That's what it shows in your heart. But this is the competing mindset that we're going to continue to have. And so I've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God and participating in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's another kingdom. It's the kingdom of sin. It's the kingdom of flesh. It's the kingdom of the world. And in fact, we don't want to admit this, but it's our kingdom. 
the kingdom we want to create for ourselves. And we will always be stuck in this battle between participating in the kingdom of God and building our own kingdom out of selfishness, out of favoritism. We'll always be stuck between those two realities. But to put our value in wealth or in power is to live in the kingdom of the world, is to not put our faith in Christ. The third principle that James mentions is that favoritism is illogical. So points two and three kind of come together here. They kind of go together. Favoritism is unreasonable and it's illogical. It makes no sense. And this is where James points out to the church that favoring the rich over the poor makes no sense because the rich oppress you. They, they drag you into court and they blaspheme God's name. And so basically James is asking them this question. He's saying, why would you show partiality or favoritism to the people who blaspheme God, who don't follow God? Why would you show partiality to those people? James is not saying that you should hate the rich because they're rich or hate them because they oppress you. He knows that God has called us to love our enemies. He's asking, why would we show favoritism or partiality to them? Now, let's reflect together as a moment because we must ask ourselves the same questions. Why do we show favoritism or partiality to the rich, to the affluent, to celebrity? Why do we do those things? Why do we cater to the influential or the powerful? It's because we want something in return, right? It's because we want a reward back. We want to say at the right time and in the right hour, because I've showed you as my favorite, then you're going to give me the valuables that you have, or you're going to give me the influence that you have, or you're going to share your power with me. That, brothers and sisters, is manipulation. So favoritism has much less to do with the people you choose as your favorites and more to do with the condition of your heart. You're submitting other people to your will. You're saying to other beings, other humans made in the image of God, that your value is not that you're made in the image of God. Your value doesn't extend beyond your valuables that you can share and give to me. Favoritism is not about... Favoritism is not just about who we like and dislike and respect or don't respect. Favoritism is about controlling others, in fact. Controlling others to build our own kingdom. Favoritism is thinly veiled idolatry. It's to idolize our own will and our own desire. It is putting our faith in the kingdom of the world and the flesh and to build our own. And that's the tension, like I mentioned before, that we live in. We simply live in a place where we are deciding every day which kingdom will we participate in. And so that's the question I want to ask you this morning. Which kingdom will you participate in? I know which kingdom we participate in when we come and we worship together. I'm talking about when we leave this place, when we're working, when we have that really annoying coworker that we don't want to be nice to, or that we want to play favorites against. That's the time when I want you to ask yourself, what kingdom will I participate in? What kingdom will I help to build? One kingdom thrives on favoritism. The other kingdom prefers submission. One kingdom caters to preference, and the other is not bound by outward appearances. One kingdom thrives on control. And the other pursues submission 
pursues serving others the way Christ did, one kingdom will die with its pride, will perish with their pride. But the other kingdom will find true life in humility, in the humility of Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 says this. This is Jesus describing himself, which he doesn't do all that often. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly. I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If the king of glory puts aside favoritism, then it is time that his bride, the church, does the same. We must put aside those things within us because favoritism is unloving. And when we choose the kingdom of God, we choose to put aside favoritism. It's like I said before, they're incompatible. We become about God's kingdom and not our own kingdom. We choose to live in humility. And in a world where everyone else will do all they can to make their name known, we will do all we can to make Christ's name known. And so in this situation that James writes about in chapter 2 here, about the rich and the poor, to show favoritism to the rich or to any other outward quality is to glorify the human condition and not God. And so the call for us today as true Christians is to glorify God and Him alone. And in order to do that, we must lay aside favoritism. It does not allow us to bring God glory over man. And so consider again as we close, which kingdom will you live in? Which kingdom will you participate in? Which kingdom will you build? We must lay aside partiality and take up the love of all people, not just respect for some of them. Bow your heads with me this weekend.